0: Welcome to episode three hundred and thirty-three of the AMPM podcast. This week, my guest is Michael Lebhar. Michael started selling on Amazon when he was in the tenth grade, about nine years ago, and now he's doing millions of dollars on Amazon and off Amazon. And that's what we're talking about today. Mostly is selling off Amazon, specifically in Walmart, and actually getting into retail Walmart stores and what he's done. He's got some really good tips and strategies. Plus, he's got a really cool technique to help you launch your products. Enjoy this episode.
1: Welcome to the AM, PM podcast. Welcome to the AM, PM podcast. We explore opportunities in e-commerce. We dream big and we discover what's working right now. Plus, this is the podcast for money never sleeps. Working around the clock in the AM and the PM. Are you ready for today's episode? I said, I said are, are, are you, you ready, ready? Let's do this. Let's do this. Here's your host, here's your host. Kevin, Kevin King. King. Ke- Ke- Kevin King.
0: Michael Lebhar, welcome to the AMPM podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. You spoke at like a Helium 10 Elite event back in, uh, I guess it was before the Sail and Scale Summit last September. I think that's where I actually uh, first ran into you.
1: Yeah, so it was that there was like that pre um helium, um helium ten elite event before the selling skill summit, so that was cool. Yeah,
0: yeah, and uh, for those of you listening, helium ten elite is normally closed uh, for most of the year, but actually it's open right now. So if if you've been waiting for an opportunity to actually get in to helium ten elite, now is your chance. If you go to helium ten dot com forward slash elite, you can get all the information. But uh, it, it includes monthly training. You get free access to in person events like at prosper at the selling scale uh show you get uh some additional software some extra limits there's just a a laundry list of uh, benefits to being a helium 10 elite member so if if that's something that you're you're into be sure to check that out right now at helium 10.com forward slash elite it's going to be closing soon so it's not always open so there's a limited window of when you can get into that but michael you've been selling for a day or two i I think uh, you started about uh, eight or nine years ago selling i think you said when you were uh
1: in high school, is, is that correct? Yeah, I started early in high school. I think it was closer to that, like the like end of 10th grade. Oh wow. And what were you doing
0: were you just uh, doing arbitrage at that point or did you actually start like with a full-on uh, like FBA brand or what, what were you actually doing?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. From when I decided I wanted to start selling online, um, there was these brothers in my community that were selling a ton, and they were young um, and were doing really well. So I'm like, I just need to learn what they're doing, and they had a brand on Amazon. So I was like picking their brain, and then like, I knew I wanted to do that, but I knew I, you know, it would take me time to find my product and do that. So until then, I actually just um, would find products for good prices and just sell them on eBay, even not even Amazon yet. And through, through that process, um, at that same time that I was doing that, which was a few months, I was looking for my first private label product. But I really pretty early on started with private label. And it was just I was doing some arbitrage while I was getting my private label product. Um, but the arbitrage was just on eBay. And when I launched my first private label product, it was honestly just on eBay.
0: Did you see a course or something? Or did you just hear from these two brothers and, and see what they were doing? And that's how they got you into it? Or did you see some advertisement or a course or anything back then? I think... Like one of those courses that was out or you just got straight into it?
1: So interestingly enough, I really just got straight into it because of these brothers. Um, they were they were already doing so well. They were young and um, their business was already by then doing in the tens of millions. Um, and they were in their 20s. So I'm like, I could do it too. Like, I just need to learn. Not that, but I'm like, I could just learn. And interesting enough, I just remembered that there wasn't a lot of courses or information out in those times. Like that was amazing, but I didn't take that. Um, I remember the, um, besides I would always call these brothers and just bug them about stupid questions. Like I would ask them, like I would call these people who had like, you know, 500,000 square foot warehouse, but ask them questions on like, how I print a shipping label. Um, <laughs> and like, I would, you know, I would get stuck on stupid things. But, um, I remember the one thing that I did was I remember now that APM podcast, I think it was like a year or two into me starting to sell, was out and that was like one thing I would always listen, like on my way to school, the AMPM podcast. And it's funny cause there wasn't a lot of content out there or anything, but I remember when, when Manny Coates had it and um, he would talk on that. So I remember that, that, that was one piece of content I would listen to and I would just ask people, like I asked people that just sold online and then I'm starting to know more people and just ask people like every single question. <laughs> yeah, in
0: the early days, the AMPM podcast was a good, I mean, I listened to it, I think I picked it up. Manny Coates started it, I think in 2015 and it, he was documenting his journey so the the first 15 20 30 episodes something like that were all about you know the process that he was going through to find products and to actually and this is before Helium 10 existed before he started Helium 10 so he was just documenting it, it was and he would share his numbers every every month i think i
1: remember and, that and it, <laughs> it
0: was it was it was really good and so yeah that 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 would have been a great place to learn back then there just there wasn't much software there was just a, a couple tools there wasn't much there's only a handful of podcasts like three or four maybe so these two brothers they were doing actually that you said they had a brand so they they had actually were they doing like the traditional find something in alibaba and rebranded or they created something from scratch
1: yeah so there were actually four brothers two of them twins um um and then they had um two other brothers and uh they they actually build like a beauty brand so they were actually at that time already they were already manufacturing a lot in their own facilities are you talking Um, about art naturals yep Naturals, (laughs) Art Naturals, <laughs> all right
0: now. That Art, when you said uh, two brothers are twins, and then uh, two others, uh, yeah, Art Naturals, all right, those guys are super sharp guys, super, yeah. sharp, super sharp guys. So, it, that's where you cut your teeth, all right. Now, now, yeah. then, now this is making sense, all right, all right, yeah. Uh, yeah Art Naturals, for those of you that don't know, was one of the hugest brands on Amazon, they actually. Got into a little bit of trouble at one point, but, uh, down the, down the road, but they, they grew like, like you said, into hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't, I mean, I during the pandemic, they were one of the first ones out with like hand sanitizers and they were just crushing it with hand sanitizers. They were in whole foods. They were like everywhere.
1: Costco, every target, and, everywhere. Everyone. I
0: mean, they were just pumping this stuff out. And I met those guys at a, at a mastermind. I think Howard Tide did a mastermind in Vegas, like in 2000, uh, eight May, uh, twenty twenty eighteen, 2018, I think it was. And a couple of those guys came out and I was like, man, these guys, these guys know their stuff. So if that's, if that's where you apprenticed or who you were calling, <laughs> all right, now this is making sense. All right. Yep.
1: That's it. So yeah, it was just, and it was honestly just asking as much questions because there wasn't a lot of information out there. It's like, now I tell when some of my friends always tell me like, I want to get into selling online. I'm like, it's so great. Like I, you, you could just, I, I could tell you a bunch of stuff, but honestly, just go on these sites, there's so many resources like with UM10, there's like so many layers of different resources, like for every single level. Whether it's like you like community, whether you like blogs, whether you like podcasts, whether you like, you know, um training courses. Like so it was a whole different kind of um game out there. You just had to fight for it um and just try to figure everything out. But it got you know, I learned so much throughout those early years because I had to figure out everything out myself and try a lot of things. You know, so because like there wasn't like, oh, am I making the right decision? There wasn't a lot of ways to know if I was doing the right thing. I just had to try things. So there's a lot of a lot of errors made, a lot of money lost, a lot of money made, a lot of just playing around. So
0: you're, you're in high school, going to school by day and uh, playing business by night.
1: Yeah. So actually, I went to um, like a Jewish school that was very rigorous. So like we would I would have to get there at 730 in the morning and we would only finish classes like at 930 p.m. approximately. Um, and because there was a lot of Hebrew classes and also a very, um, a very rigorous English program. So, and like a lot of, um, a lot of other studies. So I would, what I would do is I had a car, so I would just, I would basically in the, like during breakfast, I would go to my car work. And then during lunch, I would drive home. And then later on, like, um, I think a year and a half at the selling, I got a warehouse, like, um, a few blocks away from the school and I would just drive there. Um, take care of stuff during lunch, and then dinner again, and then at night. Um, me and my brother, I worked with my younger brother. We would just stay up all night a lot of times and just hustle out, trying to find products, trying to you know once we already found our products, trying to you know just play the Amazon game. So it was it was it was fun.
0: <laughs> you said you started with a little bit of arbitrage just to get going, and then you while while you looked for your first actual true product. What, what did you actually find uh, What what was the first thing that you actually launched that was like yours or that you, that you, that you found? Yeah. So it was a
1: workout glove and it was actually a pretty unique workout glove where it had like a, a strong wrist wrap. Um, but the front was open. Um, and yeah, that category evolved a lot, but early then it was, it was, it was, it was really interesting because we were working out a lot, me and my brother. So we, it was cool for us that like, we kept, every time we got a new order, we would just use them, make iterations, you know, like, Oh, we want the grip a little bit better. We want this stitching a little bit better. And, um, yeah, so we launched that product and that one did really well. Um, and you know, we were able to grow from that product, um, later on that product, And category became a nightmare to deal with but just because the amount of a a big wave of like Chinese sellers came into the market and just our listings would just get hit every single day it was something else and like I didn't even know how to deal with it back then but it's just like every single day there's just another reason why these listings would just get hit
0: how did you finance I mean if you're if you're in 10th 11th 12th grade at this time how, how did you actually finance all all your inventory and everything
1: so um, prior to that, like earlier in high school, and even at um, at like, you know, still in elementary school, I was always doing odd jobs. So like I, you know, I had like a bookbinding business, which I was making some money from and then I would always save all my money. And then um, I did like a lawn mowing business. Um, and then um, I had a car washing business where I I just ran it like I had, I I found a few kids that wanted that, that would do it. I would have all the cars pull up to my parents' driveway and then, um, my friends would come helping cars and then, um, I would make money that way. And I just did everything to just have make some money. Me and my brother had some money saved up. And then we started with that, you know, back then it didn't take that much to launch a product also. So we were able to do it, you know, we didn't even spend all our money on it. Originally we were able to just do it like that. I remember their first order was like a hundred of these workout gloves we listed them on eBay. We went to school. And then I remember it's like my phone's just buzzing and it's just like, I'm getting so excited. I'm like, Oh, and, and within a few days they all sold out. And I'm like, this, that's what, when I knew this was kind of like, Oh, I have to do this.
0: <laughs> so did you finish high school or did you?
1: Yeah. So I finished high school. Um, and then I actually went on to some further studies in Israel, but once I finished high school, I was, I was on my own. Like even I went for some further studies in Israel, but that was more like, um, on my own kind of schedule and I got like an office in Israel and I, um, and yeah, then I, then I came back and came back and moved back to LA. But yeah, um, I think I was always thought I would going to go, I was going to go to college and just, you know, by the time I finished high school, I was ready. Um, it was a full fudge business and we had a decent team by then already. So, so this is like 2016, 2017. Yeah, I think 20, I'm really bad. I think 2017 was, I graduated in 2017, I think. And so what, what
0: did you expand into next after the workout clause when you started having all these problems with all these competitors coming in and it getting pretty nasty and competitive, yeah. what, what did you go into next?
1: Yeah. So what I went to next was, um, home and kitchen. Now with home and kitchen, I had a, another whole interesting story <laughs> where, um, we launched these laundry baskets that. Um, really that yeah, were really cool, honestly. They collapsed really well. They were collapsible laundry baskets, but most of the collapsible laundry baskets in the space would collapse really like really poorly. They weren't collapsing properly. Um, we found this laundry basket and this technology where it had like a a, a, sh- a ring around the middle where it helped it in, in between the rubber where it helped it collapse properly and um already then I was a little more experienced so we did some patent searches we couldn't find anything like very brief and then we saw that there was a couple sellers selling but um their shapes weren't that good and there's their's didn't, didn't look as nice so um we we decided to launch it but we did this one put heavily invested in this product because we were already much more established so i think our first order was like two 40 Hq containers of it so like It was a pretty large order and we launched it really aggressively. I I built out, um, that was in the beginning of like people were leveraging like ManyChat um, to launch like through giveaways. So I did like a big giveaway launch. I was really early in playing around with those things. So um, I built a lot of those um, through giveaways and we were able to um, rank for, um, we were bestseller in our category for a few days but like in general for all the laundry work keywords we were like number one and then i remember we had a really really big shipment coming we just placed a really big order for these laundry baskets the listing was already getting really established and this is going to be like um you know become like become a, a really staple product of ours and then we got hit with a patent notice that this company filed a utility patent that i remember the date was like april 1st or something mm-hmm. a utility patent that just went live it was like we got the notice on April 2nd that just went live April 1st. Um, and, you know, it takes five years for utility patent. So the whole time, you know, we were able to sell it, but we made this order right before. And not only they had a utility patent in the U.S., they filed for like m- most major countries. Um, oh, wow. And I was like, oh, my God. And then what? I, I was so confused because I was like back, Black & Decker was selling the same one. And I was like, why would they sell it? if? It, and it turns out Black & Decker was also had to stop selling it. And it was like, um, it was a company based out of China that had the pants. Um, so we had to stop selling that, dispose of a lot of inventory eventually. So, what'd you
0: do with those? Did you actually dispose of it or did you wink, wink, dispose of it? So,
1: what actually became really interesting was as the trend was, um, as our basket was doing, was doing really well, I actually went and exhibited. I was really wanting to get into retail. I don't know why. I just always really wanted to get into retail. So we exhibited at a show, the houseware show in Chicago. I forgot the exact name. At the McCormick
0: place it. or whatever. Yeah. 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 McCormick yeah. yeah. Uh huh.
1: Yeah. So we had a booth there and, um, people were actually really liking it. Cause they, at the time our product was, had the number one bestseller badge. We were selling a ton and, um, they're all coming and Our booth was just about the laundry baskets and people were coming and we got a lot of interest from a lot of big retailers. Um, but, what ended you know, um, we went through this whole situation, but one of the retailers we met at the show was somebody based out of, I think France and France was one of the countries that they didn't have a patent in. So we ended up redirecting and reship shipping a lot of the units to France and we were able to liquidate a lot of them that way. So that was kind of good. You know, we did continue to sell some, and it's like, we were able to kind of get through with that, but luckily thanks to that France supplier, we were able to get rid of a lot of the units.
0: Oh, that's cool. that's, that's, that's like, that's a good out. I'm glad you were (laughs) able to get that, get that out. So what was the lesson there? Like, so you said before you launched this thing, you actually did a search for a patent search. Did you just do that yourself on like on Google or did you have a lawyer do that for you?
1: So I did a quick search on USPTO um, site and I couldn't, I couldn't find anything. Looking back, I should have used a lawyer for it, but I was like, "There's other sellers selling it, you know, big brands that are selling it. Um, they wouldn't, you know, they probably did it. I should have just paid for a lawyer to do a proper search, um, especially with like pending trademarks and things like that. You know, to find those, sometimes it could be a little more difficult. So, utility patents aren't that simple to read sometimes. Like, you know, you, you there's a lot of them and there's a lot of intricacies to them. So. Yeah, I should have just paid for a lawyer. I ended up spending all the money on the lawyer after. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Do you do that now
0: for any new products? Do you actually have a lawyer that actually does the the thorough investigation? Because a lot of people don't realize that the lawyers have access to a lot of additional databases that aren't public. Uh, and they also have teams and experience in what to look for and how to actually find the stuff versus us who could just do a cursory look and think we're in the clear.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I spend a lot on just making sure of that because I've learned my lesson the hard time, the hard way. Um, I spend a lot making sure that we're not infringing on trademarks and repants, but also i um, protecting my own, um really protecting my own thing. So I file a lot of trademarks for our supplement brand. I probably have, 30 to 40 trademarks. Um, every one of our product names that's unique and able to be trademarked is trademarked. Every single one of our, you know, a lot of our branding slogans, all that kind of thing, all those type of stuff. I'm very into having all that if I'm going to invest a lot of money in um, telling a certain story or promoting something, like making sure that I have that protected. Um, so yeah, I spend on both both of those sides.
0: So after after this, this laundry basket fiasco, what, what was next?
1: Before Prosper, they had this, they don't have it anymore. It was called Rise 25. Yeah. Uh-huh. So if you remember that, yeah. um, there was like a get together of like a hundred sellers um, or so. And there were large sellers. Um, I spoke at that actually. And I won like the best sell best speaker award. And um, actually I spoke a lot about like ManyChat and a lot of different things. So it was new back then. And one of the people and two of the people actually in the show were very successful sellers. Um, and um, we got to collaborate and talk. And um, one of the one of the sellers there was um, he actually built a really large brand in the oral care space, um, actually had the number one product in um, beauty and health, um, health and beauty for over two years. I think It was close to three years. Um, wow. He was selling like three to four thousand units a day of charcoal teeth whitening. Um, and was able to build a massive brand off of that. Um, he was able to leverage that to get into Walmart, national retail, target national retail, um, also had an extremely successful supplement brand. Um, one of the largest in probiotics and all that. So, um, but what I really, what I really liked was he came from the branding space and the creative space. Um, and he didn't, he, he wasn't like, let's say uh, what I would consider as like um, you know, the, the typical marketer. So, and I really liked, you know, the branding and the creative space. He worked actually previously at all the big design agencies before he became an entrepreneur, worked at Apple. Um, he worked on the design of the first iPhone. So he worked at a lot of these things and um, you could tell in his brands on Amazon, they had that, that elevated approach to branding. So he was like, you know, um, you know, Amazon's a great platform. more about like we could literally leverage what we have to build, uh, you know, a really strong category defining brand. So we partnered together and we started building a supplement brand. Um, and I was, I started growing my fitness brand um, as well that I, I had previously, but I transitioned to more focus on home home fitness where originally our, our products were much more focused on bodybuilding and more niche. I started opening up the re, um, and rebranded and started focusing on the home, the home gym sort of say market. And that was kind of that next stage of my journey was really, building out one brand on the back end and scaling my fitness brand. So
0: you're in the right place at the right time with that because COVID hit and you're doing a home-based home fitness. I'm, I'm sure you saw a big bump off of
1: that. Exactly, and um, one of the things is actually, we were selling resistance bands, but we were the second seller to have the fabric resistance bands and really early on, um, we saw like there was one seller who had fabric resistance bands and um, we're like, that makes so much sense. Um, instead of these rubber ones that just rip and tear, they're annoying. Um, we were able to actually be pretty successful on an Amazon. Again, that's probably the hardest category resistance bands. <laughs> One of the hardest categories, I think after supplements is resistance bands on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was interesting is that product was great. We actually got featured in a lot of press for it. We were doing a lot of direct consumer sales, um, on that product. And, um, we actually had that product on walmart.com. So this fitness brand, I started expanding to multiple different marketplaces. So we're selling on HSN, we were selling with Target on .com. We were selling on a bunch of other .com platforms. We were selling with Groupon. Um, but one of the channels we were selling had our products listed on was Walmart. And on Walmart, this, especially when COVID hit, this product just started going crazy. And um, even a little bit before COVID, I started noticing that what happened is that we would have our products listed on all these marketplaces, but all of them would bring in a little bit of sales. Um, without a lot of work you just you know list there we just had you know one of our admins just work on listing our products there but Walmart was just significantly growing so I'm like if I put my approach that I really put with Amazon it's like really trying to crack the code try to figure out the details intricacies of the platform um, there might be something there and as I as I started getting more involved and focusing on it I realized that there was much more sales opportunity there and the idea of Walmart just excited me because I saw how much you were investing in the platform. I saw how much it was growing. And at the same time, the platform was getting much better. The marketplace was growing a lot. Um, I started seeing much more sales. And um, I always said, like, I always really want to get my products into retail and my brand into retail. And I also looked at walmart.com as like a gateway for retail. So um, it was really interesting. Um, during COVID, actually, those bands did so well that the buyer from that category in walmart.com reached out and wanted to work out to get our products into retail. Um, Walmart retail. So um, that was really interesting. I was playing around a lot with that with Walmart then and just getting to really understand it. So did you get that product in t- onto store shelves? So um, because it was during COVID and we had um, inventory restraints, um, we went through their 1P program where they bought it directly and just listed on their, on their sites, but we didn't have enough inventory to do in store. Um, we're actually launching and we're working with the buyer right now. We're, um, we're scheduling when that's going to be on shelf, but that product as well as some others are planned to be on shelf sometime in, um, in late 2023, 2024
0: so it's, it's a big change going from e-commerce, where you can kind of call your own shots, and there's a few regulations and a few things, but to go into to retail, where you're getting POs, and you got to meet those POs, you got to finance those POs, and wait to get paid, and then there's you got to set up the on on their platforms the uh, what do they call it the E-E-R, not ERC um, EDI. EDI that's it the EDI system, and you got to have all that tied in, then you got have all your documents in order with all your insurance and all your certifications and everything. So it's, it's a big jump to actually go from kind of seat of your pants e-commerce to actually being on store shelves. Right.
1: Yeah. I'm starting to learn that. So, um, our supplement brand, we got into CVS and that was a whole of like, drug chains are the hardest to deal with um and when it comes to fees when it comes to marketing fees slotting fees just the regulation CVS has a whole program called tested to be trusted where every product has to go through testing and it's like not only it's a lot of work you got to pay for every step in the process um and yeah i think there, you know retail is is a big beast um there's a lot of advantages to it as well but it's really a whole learning curve that um you know i'm still um, getting very aware of but The, what I've noticed is, is that out of all the retailers is like Walmart. They're the easiest to deal with. They act as real business partners. A lot of retailers act, especially in the drug chain, they just, um, try to see how they could get the most money from you. So like they'll just slap bills on you and everything. What we're learning is for Walmart, they want to be your actual real partners and they want partners. So they'll, you know, make sure you're able, you know, they'll work with you to make sure you're able to support where you need to. They'll actually, you know, um, you know, they'll communicate Mm -hmm. with you based on how many stores and communicate with you based on what you could fulfill. There there isn't any of these slotting fees or marketing fees, which um, cost a lot of money for other retailers. Like um, CVS, for example, you have to pay, for the, when they take on a new product. So let's say one of our, we got four new products I'm um, in CVS in a thousand stores. You have to pay now for three units of each SKU at every store. So like, I remember like the initial slotting bill for that was like, you know, I think it was 140 or $150,000 just for slotting fees. Then you have your marketing fees and other associated things. So, you know, with retail, it's like, you have to be very strategic about it because e-commerce, you can make a couple mistakes here and there and you just rebound, and that's what happened with us. We had some bigger mistakes like the laundry baskets and you know, we have, but we had a lot of smaller mistakes we just rebound from. With retail, you have to be very calculated because one mistake is could be really big.
0: Yeah, those fees, like you're saying, they nickel and dime you. They may say, okay, we want a, we want 70% off uh, retail as, as our price. And then there's a 3% uh, co-op marketing fee, there's a, a, a slotting fee if your label on your cases is off by a half inch, there's a $50 per label fee. Uh, you yep. know that, that it, it, get, it gets crazy on, on some of the fees and it can knock another five, 10, 15% off uh, what, what, yep. you, what, what you're getting. And then you have to deal with the returns. And a lot of times they don't send the returns back. Uh, they just you just affidavit returns and all that kind of stuff. It, it, it can be a great thing, but it, it can also be a, a big pain in the butt, like like you're like you're saying so on walmart what do you why do you think you had such good success on walmart a lot of people you know i I messed with walmart about 2016 2017 when it first started it was a disaster back then and i'm not selling on walmart right now Uh, but a lot of a lot of people are have said it's hit or miss for them it's a different type of clientele for the most part and some people have great success on Amazon, they go to Walmart and it's a total failure. And then the other people are the exact opposite. They, they can't crack the top 15 on, on Amazon, but they go to Walmart and, and they're crushing it. What do you think it is that's important to understand the differences between the two marketplaces and what works and what doesn't work?
1: Yeah, so that's what's um, really interesting about Walmart is there is scenarios where it's, it, it's not right for some sellers and it is right for other sellers. Um, I think um, something's important about Walmart are that you have to think, like you said about the clientele, like who are the customers shopping there. And a lot of the customers shopping there are people that are going to Walmart stores and buy at Walmart stores. Now they're just, you know, starting to buy more online. So they're looking for general household items. They're not a lot of products that do well on, on Amazon. People browse for different, a lot of times, interesting um, products. You know, this is a cool product. It's a cool accessory. On Walmart, it's very much based around needs. So like they're coming, they're buying their household needs, whether it's food, whether it's, um, you know, except let's say it's mops, brooms, um, extension cords, things like that. Um, you know, they do really well on Walmart. And what's interesting is Walmart used to be um, two separate sites. It used to be like a pickup and delivery site where the products that are in stores and you could purchase that. And then there was their regular com site and there were two separate checkouts. They last year merged them both together and um, now, the products that you list have much more exposure because people looking at these pick and delivery products are now seeing your products, could see your products right next to them, even if you're, you know, you're not in stores. Um, and the products that do re- really good on Walmart, it's like products that are easy to understand, um, they're um, competitive price points. So it's like people can get mistaken a lot of people like w- want to sell their say like oh my products only good for walmart if they're like really low priced it's more about if you're really competitively priced like people aren't looking to pay premiums on walmart at all it's you know everyday low prices so um but you know if they're buying a toaster they are going to expect price to spend spend the price of a toaster so it's like you know um for us honestly the price products it's it, the price of products that work best are between like the 20 to 30 dollar range um, you're able to get a lot of volume there, but also you have enough to spend on ads. Um, the certain categories that work really well are toys work really well. Um, uh, general household items, um, think, you know, extension cords, hoses. We used to sell a lot of, um, uh, hose tops. I don't even know what they're called anymore. <laughs> um, um, a lot of, you know, garden scissors, things like that, garden accessories, um, you know, laundry baskets do really well on Walmart, all those sort of categories and products. um, Uh, apparel does really well on, on Walmart as well. Um, you have a lot of, um, you know, and when you think of categories that don't do well, supplements, supplements, people are looking to really buy from brand, very simple product, not looking to try something new. They're trying to buy from brands. They already know, and they purchase every single day, um, that are, you know, really low priced. And it's really hard to compete with those because most of those products are in store. So the shipping price doesn't show. So like you're competing on, you don't have their price. They don't know who you are. They're not trusting you. But a lot of times with these other categories, even if you're not a trusted and well-known brand name, um, you could really still take over those sales. And what people have to understand for Walmart, it's a massive, massive focus, walmart.com. So they're willing to do a lot to make walmart.com grow. And that means that any vendors that they have that's in stores, they're giving high requirements for what they need to perform on .com. Even if it's very minimal sales compared to their retail sales, they'll tell them like your POs in store POs are going to get a cut back. If you don't, you know, improve your listing quality score, spend X amount on Walmart ads and mm. all of these kind of things. Really? So yeah, it's been a big thing that Walmart's been focusing a lot on that. And I think it's worked to two advantages. like we went through this whole retail conversation and I think, um, you know, there's so much issues with retail, but from my experience, Walmart is one of those retailers where you turn units, they don't screw you on random things. And they have a lot of programs, like you said earlier on that, you don't have to start massive. Like they, you could start in a hundred stores, you could start, um, really small and you could scale up with them. Um, and they're, they're really good to work with in that sense. And because they're putting a focus on com, a lot of brands are seeing success by being able to enter the Walmart Um, and enter brick and mortar by leveraging their walmart.com relationship and um the on the other side of things these really big brands who have had success for decades with walmart are now put in force to try to figure out.com and they're having a hard time with it because they're not equipped and they're not they're not trained to really work like that so they don't understand the intricacies of getting ranked properly of managing their catalog of you know you know putting a big focus on reviews things of that nature
0: yeah it's a big change for that's from the most corporate world to the guerrilla marketing world, competing as uh, as as a three P, but also Walmart. When you're in retail, are they doing this for any of your stuff? Where you have to actually package it differently. For example, if you're selling, I don't know, uh, protein bars, and you're normally six to a pack, six to a box, protein bars. Walmart for their shelves will say, "We're not going to take that one. Uh, we want one that's uh, five to a box." Or if you know, if your laundry detergent is 64 ounces on Amazon, they want one that's 60 ounces with a different UPC or something, so that people can't. It makes it harder to price compare and price shop. Or in some cases, it's to get a certain price point, uh, because Walmart says our customers won't pay $8.99 for, uh, a box of, uh, laundry detergent, but they'll pay $8.62. Um, that's the max we'll go. So you need to take two ounces off of, off of this bottle or whatever. Are you seeing any of that kind of stuff?
1: That's an amazing question that goes into the whole story of how we got into Walmart stores. And, um, you know, as I said, like I, you know, I explore walmart.com a lot. I wanted to get into Walmart stores. So we leveraged that as a channel to kind of open up, um, our Walmart um, relationship. And what we did is had good um, performance on walmart.com, even though the sales were not exciting. What do you mean? What's not exciting mean? The, I mean, the sales for supplements were like, it's so hard to compete in supplements. They were so minimal. Um, you know, like it was, it, it's like we had SKUs that were doing, you know, a few hundred dollars a month. But we would still manage it and still keep it on. And SKUs, they were doing a few thousand, which um, you can't even pay for the cost of even just log- an employee logging into it and managing that. But,
0: what, what was that same SKU doing on Amazon by comparison?
1: So the supplements, we weren't selling specifically on Amazon, but like some of those SKUs were selling direct-to-consumer. And you know some of those SKUs are doing twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 on or direct-to-consumer. And on, on, on Walmart, they're maybe doing a 1,000. Okay. You know, something along those lines. Um, and um, what we realized is that um, for, for Walmart, they understand that, you know, these new supplements, they're bringing in a lot of um, revenue for new brands and all that. But we just knew we had to maintain really good listing quality score, really, um, you know, show we're spending on ads, show our listings are ranked well. And we came into, Walmart has this program called Walmart Open Call. And Walmart Open Call is actually really interesting where um, they invite brands that are made or assembled in the USA and um to pitch your brand to a walmart buyer and what's really cool is that traditionally new brands have a very hard time getting into retail because retailers only want to they don't care if you did really well on amazon or any of that they're old-fashioned they look at iri data it's called and they look um in their 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 helium 10 so to say of their data and they look inside and if your brand doesn't pop up for selling on stores they're usually not interested there's some buyers who are more aware and um, are interested in products that did well on, on, on online marketplaces. But in general, it's very hard to get your initial break into retail. Walmart has this program where they open it up and specifically for small businesses. And you get to pitch your, your you come out to Arkansas. There's like a thousand sellers um, every year and you pitch it to you pitch, your brand. Now it's not all of a sudden, are you the best product that they could bring? Are you the best brand? It's more about could they fill this initiative they're trying to do and um, help put a focus on this program that they're building out. So you have a little more on your side. We came into that meeting. We're like, our products, our supplements are priced a little bit premium. The packaging isn't really fit for shelf. So I'm like, we're like, are we going to come in like that? And maybe they'll give us 10, 15 stores as a nice test or probably give us nothing. Um, or are we? could we try to position ourselves to be the right fit for Walmart? Um, and what we did is that we actually went, um, we got, got, got to work and developed a line of SKUs that were priced sub, um, well, they were really priced 1299 when our average products were priced 20 to $30 plus 1299 in a form factor that was easier to understand. And then in packaging that we thought would make much more sense for Walmart. We went into the meeting and, um, the buyer was so impressed. Um, he's like, a lot of times I, you know, accept brands on the spot for small distribution, um, and small amount of stores. Um, you know, but I think you guys are fit for line review which line review was later in september um and that's when they decide you know their main their main brands and the, the main refresh of their whole of their whole aisle and the supplement aisle is one of the most successful at walmart and um we came but he's like for line review i want you to see if you could get your pricing sub ten dollars he's like it's not about squeezing you it's like if you have to you know forgo some other things and maybe make the margin for us a little bit less that's fine. We just know that the turn rate for under $10 is very important. So if you have to make it a little smaller or anything like that, he's like, that's really important. And number two is you have to understand we have a pusher system. And that's why it's so important. You want to show your Walmart buyer you know what you're doing. We went into the stores and understood that in the supplement aisle, everything is very condensed and there's pushers. So your packaging has to fit well within those pushers, right? So like you could have a great product, but if it's not positioned like that, the buyer's like, oh, you didn't think that through. So, you know, we actually thought through a box for that. And what we did is took a step further is, you know, another thing people don't think about for Walmart, um, you know, and retail in general, on shelves, there's a lip, right? So it covers um, a little bit of the bottom of your product. So you have to think about what does your products, your packaging say on the bottom? Is it important that that shows? If it's important that that shows, you have to raise it a little bit. But only that, a lot of times, a lot of products are very are, are not that high and they're very low. So if it's, if you have a two, three inch product and your packaging is just two to three inches, barely any of the product is going to show on the shelf. And Walmart cares about their shelf space in width. So like you, they want narrow products because they could fit more of those. Um, but the height is, stays the same. So what we did for our products is we made our pack, our products really narrow. And what the buyer said is like, now I could take more of your SKUs, but we also made our packaging really tall. So even though our, Um, our, our boxes for our product is double the height of our actual bottle. And we just have an insert in there because it gives us so much more shelf space and awareness. And you want to strategize things like that because not only they're going to help you succeed when you're on shelf, but it also shows the buyer that you actually thought through those touch points. And, um, we, the reason why it came up for us is my partner who got the charcoal teeth winding into Walmart. Um, and he got into Walmart from the start nationally in 30, in 3,300 stores from the first day. Um, Because it was that product was growing so well on Amazon. Um, But he he said, um, um, as they were valuing their sales, they realized that their their packaging would barely showed on the shelf because it was so narrow. So people weren't even able to see the product. So um, in their second run, they actually made taller packaging and their sales grew like a a crazy percentage. Um, So Things like that. You want to really think through those touch points. Long-winded answer, but um, it's a great question because that's a lot of what it is. You have to think about like Walmart, what they want, and a lot of these retailers want. They're the one retailer where it's worth making these adjustments for. Um, and it's worth making these adjustments. You just have to think them through.
0: So I'm assuming you have a house list from all the stuff that you've done. You got, you have some sort of mechanism that you're using from your Amazon sales or whatever to get people onto a list.
1: So we'll just email customers and be like, do you want to customers that spend like over a certain amount of money? Do you want to join this program? You know, we'll give them something in, um, in war maybe like a gift card to our site and we'll just enroll them in it.
0: So when you launch in Walmart later this year with these 1500 Walmarts, are you going to you'll know which Walmarts those are. That's not all the Walmarts, but you'll know. So if you know that in the Sacramento area that you're going in all the Walmarts, could you not go into your list and find all your Sacramento customers that are in, in your list from and say, hey, uh, we're now in Walmart. Uh, if you go to Walmart and you scan this the QR code or something that's on the box or, or an NFC or whatever, and show us that you bought at this Walmart, we'll give you some sort of gift uh, of some sort. And then in, in exchange, the Walmart buyers going, well, holy cow, this stuff's flying off the shelf. Uh, you, you know, are you, are you planning on doing any? Anyth-? I know some people that have done that in the past when they got in the retail. They they got into a test, you know, like a ten store test, and they just flooded their list. They just started running Facebook ads targeting that, those zip codes, you know, for their product, and stuff starts flying off the shelf. Uh, and and the buyers are like, holy cow, you know, let's roll this out to to 50 stores, to 100 stores. And they just kept repeating the process, and it worked. Are you going to do anything like that?
1: That honestly, like those type of things, are what sets you apart apart from the other brands there. And all you have to think about when you're getting into Walmart is how do you turn more units per store per week than um, you're expected, and then the other sellers there. And when you're a new brand, you don't have repurchase, so it's hard. You have to really get strategic about it. And that that's one great example is capturing um, the customer data. So what we're doing is actually getting, let's say, all our Sacramento buyers, targeting those people, but then also creating lookalikes of those audiences. So we could target a lot of those people who are also good potential customers and are near, um, you know, just geo target them near, that are near those stores to actually, you know, um, you know, let them know to purchase our product. And we actually developed a really cool technology where you scan and it gives brings you through like this really um, quick, really intuitive like um, uh, video survey, talking about the product and also offering you different things that you could win. Um, and through that, we're gonna be pixeling these people also targeting them, um, but also having, you know, a big thing is getting them to come in and buy some of the other SKUs, Um, you know, because we have um, a few SKUs on shelf there. So getting them to, you know, want to come back in, purchase again, but also purchase some of the other products that we have on shelf and incentivizing to do things like that. And I think that's what really sets new brands apart without really crazy marketing budgets that could just throw money down the garbage. Like what ways could you really be creative about turning units um, in store and things like that make the difference, like scan, getting them to scan, targeting those customer base. And that's one thing that you have advantage. If you're selling before online, you have so much customer data you could use. Um, so that's going to be really cool to use. I agree. I agree hundred percent. So what do you think, you know,
0: what are you projecting that your retail sales will be compared to your online sales? Do you, are you expecting as you're growing this, that retail is going to be 70% of your business and e-commerce 30%. Is it a 50, 50? Where do you think, where do you see this going?
1: So yeah, we're trying to aim for somewhere like 60, 40, um, where 60% retail, like 40% e-commerce, because a big, even though we've had a lot of early, a lot of retail interest, and we think that's going to be scaling a lot, you know, direct to consumer is so important because of a big thing of how we want to really mark, you know, we have to support our marketing at retail. Now, you could just do very retail-targeted marketing, or what we're trying to do is really do um, awareness marketing that also um, brings in a strong direct-to-consumer sales because then it's much more sustainable if through our marketing efforts of building awareness to try to turn more units at Walmart. The most important thing is if we could figure out really turning well at Walmart and um, performing well there every other retail door is open to you and we already are expanding in some other retailers, but every single other retail door opens up. Um, because you know, every retail, every retailer is scared to be the first retailer yeah, to they, take on a new brand and an innovative product.
0: They're watching each other though. You, you could do good in one, the, the rest all want you.
1: Exactly. And that's why it's like for a lot of brands, it's hard to get that first one. Right. And that's why the Walmart thing has been so interesting and why I've done it, you know, now for two of my brands and, um, you know, we're working with clients to do something similar as well is because you could be you could start off very strategic, low risk by launching on Walmart.com. Your the revenue the effort you make on Walmart.com, you could bring enough revenue where it's worth it on its own. Like supplements happens to be a very hard category, but if you're in other categories, like with our fitness brand, we do very well on Walmart.com. We do I think it you know um, a million and a half to two million just on our main um, fitness product line um, on Walmart.com. Like you could do revenue, good strong revenue there. Um, and even though that would be a fraction of retail revenue, but that's still strong revenue. You could do that while you're doing that, you're building your relationship with your buyer. When we got into, got into our Walmart meeting for the fitness brand, when I stepped into that room, it was with the director of fitness for the whole category. He walked in with eight supporting buyers and, um, and he's the director of fitness for the whole category. Um, he's not, and what people have to understand is Walmart merged the buying team. So it used to be like a dot com buyer and a, and a retail buyer. Since they want to combine those efforts, the buyer that's in charge of buying all the fitness products is also in charge of how fitness performs on dot com. He comes in with eight of these buyers, and I'm. It's usually like one or two buyers in the meeting, and I'm just get scared. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> like what's going on? And the buyer's like, oh, I've seen you. You guys do really well on dot com. Thanks for all your efforts on dot com. And like. The brands that he currently has on shelf are doing hundred million dollars of business with them, but they're performing really poorly on Dot Com because they're not putting the effort there. But he's not, you know, he's getting judged a little bit on how he performs in retail. But his 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 managers are like, your Dot Com is doing poor, mo- poorly compared to other Dot Coms, and you know your merchants have to step up there. So for him, you know, that it really helped build that relationship, and um, we were able to really expand on that relationship there. So it's it's there because. You know, Walmart.com is that passageway, and then you have Open Call, which makes it easier for you to get meetings. It makes it much more attainable for smaller brands to have a, a position with getting into Walmart, and you know, it's not really risk because you you're selling on .com anyway. You're going to be making money on .com anyway, so it's it's really such good value there that you could have that. So that's why it's been really interesting because traditionally like brands, you'll have to hire a broker to get you a meeting. And brokers now don't just work on percentage. If you're a new brand, they want five, 10 grand a month and you're not guaranteed anything and all this, but with Walmart, it, you could take such a different approach where you're making money through that process. It's not a risk. So it's been really fun for me.
0: <laughs> now you mentioned earlier that you actually at rice 25 and stuff. You were doing uh, stuff about uh, Manny Chat and, and things like that. Kind of when that first got going to help you launch products on, on Amazon or, or Walmart or, or wherever it may be. But you also now you're involved in something else uh, on the. It's like something to do with press releases uh, and launching. And you know I, people have always talked about this since ever since I've been selling on Amazon. Yeah, you should do press releases when you when you launch a product. And uh, most of that for me, you know, I, I tested it, I tried it. Most of it is a waste of money, to be honest, um, you know, and yeah, it gets some credibility. You get some backlinks. You can say as seen on, you know, whatever uh, NBC news or whatever, wherever those feeds go in, you know, the, this it's and it right. got some credibility, but you're doing it in a little bit different way and had some really good success with that. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so it's really interesting. It's called PressX. And, um, you know, if we take a little, um, you know, back, talk a little bit about press, right? And it's like, why doesn't press work? And if you just think about how traditional press is structured, it's basically these publications, they have to write a certain amount of articles, and they have writers, they have random brands reaching out to them, sending them product. And the way it works is these writers don't have any incentive to write about your brand or product. So how, how do some brands get featured? these writers have to write an article and they have to meet their quota of articles now they're just going to look for based on the topic they're signing to writing and they get approved to write about which products fit in best to that so if you reached out to that writer and that publication in the right time you send them the product and your product was interesting you have a chance of them maybe writing about you now once they write about you it doesn't mean the article is going to really get even really promoted or get any any love or anything like that because Writers don't have an incentive to write about your product. They don't. The publication doesn't really have an incentive to really promote it. Sometimes they have small affiliate commissions from Amazon, but nothing um, where it really makes a ton of sense for them or to choose you over any other product. That that being said, because they could choose any product for that affiliate commission, um, so it just never really worked out well. And um, you know, brands would sometimes get lucky and get these massive placements. Um, I remember for one of our um, products, um, we got a massive placement in one of these um, publications, and they wrote about our product randomly. And um, we sold $70,000 of that one SKU in one day. And uh, it sold out. We had FBA, FBM inventory. Um, I think we ended off like the 48 hours at like one hundred and fifteen dollars or $120,000 in sales. And then I was like, that's really interesting. Like these publications could really, um, if they're writing about your product properly and they wrote a whole article specifically about the product, it was dropped at a good time and everything. I'm like, that's really interesting. There's you know some interesting opportunity here. Started looking more into it. And then I learned about a model where we could work with publications and a pay-per-click model. So now what it, the way it works is we'll write points about our product um, and about our client's product and we'll pitch it to a publication that we think's audience makes the most sense for this. Right? So let's say, you know, you're selling um, a sub, um, you know, a kid supplement, like scary mommy is a great publication that um, the audience is really interested there. Then they'll write on, they'll, we'll offer them a certain CPC and then they'll write an article about that product. They'll, if they if they think it's the right fit, they'll accept it. They'll write an article about that product. Now you have a writer um, getting invested in it, writing a well-structured article specifically about your product. And then the CPC model is really interesting because now what the, the publication does is they publish the article and they promote the article. You don't pay on the clicks of the article getting clicked or any impressions or anything like that. You pay on the click when somebody reads the article and clicks to your product. So now what happened is a random customer goes on, you know, a a random reader goes on Scary Mommy. They trust this publication. They're interested in what they have to say. They click on this. So there's already a certain level of trust. They're reading a really strong review now and a really strong just um, person talking about the product. So there's already a lot of trust and a lot of interest. Um, A lot of people will bounce off, but that doesn't hurt because you're not paying for that. You're only paying once they click on the product. So then the people that are clicking on the product link, they're highly interested in your product because. They actually read the whole article. They're coming with trust and they're clicking on it. They're not just shopping based on how many reviews you have. That's why for new products, it works really well because they're not, they're not review shoppers. They're not just looking at Amazon. Oh, this one has more reviews than that one. They're like, they read something really interesting about this from a publication they usually read and trust. And you only get charged on a CPC model. So if that article doesn't get any views and doesn't get any clicks, you don't pay for that. And then you just had a really good article and you get all of those other values of having a good article and people Google you, but you don't have any of those costs. And, you know, we take it a step further by even putting in Amazon attribution links in there. So now you're able to track on your side and you get the brand referral bonus of 10% because it's external traffic. And you could put what's cool is a max budget on the article. You have to put a minimum budget. But if that minimum budget doesn't get hit, you don't get charged. But you could put a max budget. So let's say the max budget is $5,000. Now, the article will still stay up after that spend hits 5,000, but you're not getting charged for any other clicks. So that article could be up for years and you're still be getting clicks and you're not getting charged for that. So we've been able to work with the publications for that. And it's, it's really been interesting because there's so many different touch points. We've been able to see a lot of success with that, especially with products that you need to tell a story behind a lot of times. You could do whatever job you want with your main image, but you can't always tell the story there and you need somebody to be able to read about your product and learn about it. So that's been really interesting.
0: The days of press have changed a lot. Uh, back uh, about almost 30 years ago, I was I started a magazine uh, and I needed to get some publicity for this magazine. I had no money. And back then you would go to these services, these like PR Newswire or something like that. that some of them probably still okay. exist and you would pay them. I don't know, three, four hundred. They had different packages. You could target like a nationwide package. You could target just the entertainment magazines. You could target just TV stations in, um, in Atlanta, Georgia, or just newspapers in the, the entire state of Georgia, you know, the main newspapers and the local little suburb newspapers or how, whatever you want to do. And you'd pay a fee based on that from 300 to, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000 bucks. And then they, you would send them the press release. They would approve it, and then they would send it out over this, like, wire. It's like a special, like, fax machine or something. Uh, you know, a special little printer that would sit in these press offices that would just be spewing print all day long. And they, they assigned somebody to watch that thing and just look at the headlines and, like, this one looks interesting. Tear, tear the piece of paper off and give it to someone to write a story about or to follow up on. That's how it worked. And I actually did that. I, I had been traveling around uh, doing my research on this, on this, for this magazine. I'd gone to all these different cities and I had all this data. And so I put out a list of like, here's the top 20 uh, cities in the country for this particular subject. And I just put it in a press release and, and I literally faxed it to the company, paid the 300 bucks. And then the next day I had Entertainment Tonight in my little apartment in Austin, Texas, uh, coming and actually shooting an interview with me I had wow. lifestyles of the rich and famous call me up and say we want to fly you to L.A. and we want you to be on on, on this show. And I became the uh, CNN t- uh, t- flew me to Dallas to do something. I, I became the de facto expert in the space. Mm-hmm. I was in Redbook. I was in New York Times. I was in uh, I, USA Today. Everywhere I have like these little plaques, uh, you know, featuring the article and featuring me. And that was the old day. That's my first experience with press. Yeah, like this stuff works if you actually give them something of value uh, that that they want, and you're not just touting how great your product is or something, but something that will pique their audience's interest or, or give them what they want. And it's become such a big business that you know wire, what's it called, Wirecutter? uh, yeah. Wirecutter. uh Actually, the New York Times bought it, and Wirecutter's in a straight-up affiliate website. Uh, I mean, you know, you look at NBC uh, news, you know, doing the little featured on the products and stuff, it, it's become big business. So what you're doing there, uh, actually makes sense. And they can probably actually make more money, uh, doing that. And they have a better vested interest and in actually promoting it, like you said, as well. Uh, so you're seeing really good success with that.
1: Yeah. It's been so interesting. And if you think about it, it's, it's a different type of shopper a lot of times. And it's, you know, that shopper, um, you know, like shopping that way. They read something and they get very interested in it and then they go purchase that. And that's why for new products, we've seen a lot of success there because they're not just shopping based on reviews. Um, When they come to your listing, they're ready to purchase. So getting that initial boost is much easier. Um, And yeah, it's all about the incentive for because what we'll see with press a lot of times is like you'll have a product, an article that comes out And then it just, your sales, you know, it goes crazy and then it just drops because they're not continually promoting it, putting it on the first page or recommending it more. But if you have an article that, you know, their their audience is really resonating with, then they'll keep promoting it. And, you know, obviously eventually their audience gets tapped, but then there's other publications you could just pitch it to. And if it's done well on other publications, they'll pick it up. And a lot of times with these publications, what works really well is their audience um, starts knowing your brand. So now you pitch them another product. The writer likes writing about your product because they know the audience resonated with, with your other product and the audience already has certain trust in your brand. So um, we'll see a lot like that. Um, if, we, if you have a good product line, you just one after another and you just that you see conversion rates so high because they already trust your brand, already know your brand. So we'll just, as we release new products, just do it that way as well.
0: That's awesome. Well, Michael, we've been talking here for quite some time. Uh, it sounds like we, we might have to do a second version of this just to, to keep this up and uh, talk about some other cool stuff. But I really appreciate you taking some time out today. Uh, you're a busy guy doing all these all these different things. And I uh, appreciate you taking some time to share with us here on the AMPM podcast.
1: No problem. I, it's interesting.
0: If someone wanted to reach out to you or learn more or get in touch with you, what's what's the best way for them to do that?
1: They could just email me, michael at sellcore.co, which is sellcor dco And yeah, any questions about Walmart, about retail or anything like that, um, you can reach out to me and yeah, we could discuss. Awesome. Appreciate it again, man. Awesome. Thank you for having me.
0: Retail is not for everybody, but if you're at the point in your business where you're ready to make that leap, it can double or even triple your top line revenue and really, really help you grow your brand and get out there. So I hope you enjoyed listening to Michael's tips and his journey to actually getting into retail and some of the the trials and tribulations and, and some of the things to do and not do. And if that's something that you're looking at doing, I wish you the best of luck. Remember, we'll be back again next week with another episode. But before we go, I've got a little tip for you, a little nugget of the week. This one comes courtesy of Thomas Edison. Yeah, that that Thomas Edison. He says, if we did all the things we are capable of, we would literally astound ourselves. If we did all the things we are capable of, we would literally astound ourselves. See you next time.